0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we are getting into the text. Now we did an introductory message last week into the Gospel of Mark, and uh, today we're going to get into into the first 13 verses. So, um, let me just start with this. Have, have, Have any of you had to make announcements for something or introductions for something. For years, uh, as a youth pastor, I was the announcements guy at the beginning of the service. I always had to do announcements. And uh, I got so tired of doing announcements all the time uh, every Sunday. And often I would get kind of lazy about it. I wouldn't write down some of the right things. And part of the purpose of an announcement is to let people know what's going on accurately and how they can relate to it. That's how you do an introduction or announcement. And one time I was doing an announcement for a ministry that we were doing at Tregaron Senior Center. Um, and, uh, and I called it Tregarin Funeral Home. And, uh, which was not great. And I did it twice. We had two services. Twice, I did the same thing and just created a huge offense. I felt terrible. Everybody laughed and they shouldn 't have laughed. Those that laughed should feel bad but uh, they laughed at my but but uh, you, you want to think through your introductions and this past week I did the I led the Dakota Baptist convention I was doing lots of introductions I didn't prepare very well there either but but the point of an introduction is to give the crucial information and to set expe- expectations for what people are about to experience either from an event or from a person and maybe you can think of ways where maybe you introduced a friend to somebody and maybe you overshared <laughs> like you shared something personally you shouldn't have shared or but you're trying to set up an expectation of what people can expect from this relationship. And when we get into Mark chapter 1, 1 through 13, we get to an introduction. Jesus is, or Mark is giving us an introduction to Jesus. And unlike me, he thought very carefully about how he was setting up this introduction, how he was creating this announcement that Jesus has come and he will change your life. We saw that last week in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You can open up your scriptures right there, Mark 1, 1. We see the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's quite an announcement. That's quite an introduction. Mark wants us to understand that a new beginning has started. Something totally life-changing, world-changing. A new world has entered. A new beginning has come, and it's good news. That's what gospel means, is good news. It's good news for all who will receive this message, all who will meet this person, and this person is Jesus Christ. Jesus from Nazareth, the Christ, the anointed one from the Old Testament, who is, in fact, the Son of God. And so a massive announcement, very carefully written, very carefully put together, Mark tells us what he is going to do in this this book. And if by meeting this Jesus, this one, it will be a new beginning for us, it will be good news for us, he is the anointed king of our lives, and he is the son of God who's come into the world. So if we think about that introduction, he is setting up pretty high expectations for us, isn't he? From the very beginning, this is what you can expect, you have just met Someone who will change your life. And Mark has the pleasure of introducing him to to us. Um, The reason Mark is writing and all the gospel writers are writing is because the apostles are starting to pass away. They're starting to die off from the scene, and eyewitness testimonies of Jesus are becoming fewer and fewer. So it's important now, by the Holy Spirit, for them to write these down. And so Mark is almost certainly, perhaps because he grew up in Jerusalem, had personal encounters with Jesus. In fact, some believe that he makes a cameo appearance in this gospel towards the end in kind of a, a humorous way. But Peter is the point of view character. We're seeing Jesus through the eyes of Peter. Mark was one of his associates, and so likely Peter is about to die or has just died when Mark writes this gospel probably in Rome, to comfort those people who are being persecuted for their Christian faith. The apostles are dying off. It looks like Christianity is under pressure. It's being persecuted. And so this gospel is written so that more people might meet Jesus. The next generation might meet Jesus and might know who he is accurately. And Mark starts right out of the gate by giving us this introduction. And so I want to go ahead and just read Mark 1, 1 through 13. I don't know, Rachel, if you can just on the fly put that on the screen or not. She's pretty handy at this. So maybe it'll be on the screen. Otherwise, you can look at your paper there. And let me just read 1 1 through 13 because he gives this introduction in verse 1 and then he supports it. He gives pillars for it, four pillars that I'm going to show you in a second. But let's just read it together here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So all of that is supporting this initial claim. Like Mark is not saying, this is not just my verdict that this is who this guy is and why he's important and why it is life-changing to meet him. In fact, he's giving evidence for it from the Old Testament Scriptures, from John, from God himself at his baptism, and even in this conflict with Satan. We get these four pillars that support Mark's thesis, Mark's point, that Jesus is the most incredible person that you've ever met in your life, and he will change you. In fact, he's changing the whole world by bringing a new kingdom. And so we, we notice Mark doesn't waste a lot of time, right? He doesn't give us a lot of introduction into John. He doesn't do any birth narrative of Jesus. He's just getting straight to the point. Mark is a, Mark is a book of action. He wants us to realize that it is not the stories about Jesus that save us, but what Jesus himself has done for us. It is, it is what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done that saves us. And so he gets right to the point pretty quickly. Now, here's the... This is kind of how I pictured it in my head as I was putting this message together is that you've got Mark's thesis statement, his title. He's given us his introduction, his announcement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then I think through the next 13 verses, he essentially gives us four pillars by which to support that statement. That statement is grounded in truth. That statement is grounded scripturally. And so Mark doesn't want us just to believe it because he says it. He wants us to believe it because of what god did in bringing this uh bringing this jesus into the world so the first pillar is the promise of the hebrew scriptures in verse two and three he quotes we'll look at that in just a moment second the preparation of the baptizing prophet that was promised in the old testament as well going hey john the baptist actually he is a reason that we should believe that jesus is the christ the son of god then in verses 9 through 11, the pronouncement of the triune God. We have at Jesus' baptism, actually, the whole triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all appear to give their endorsement of Jesus. And we have the victory over Satan's temptations in verses 12 and 13. So this introduction that he's making, this announcement Mark is making, he's resting it on these four pillars. So let's look at each one, and I'm going to almost treat each pillar almost like a little mini-sermon in itself. So this is dangerous because I can make any one sermon long and when I'm kind of treating it, but I want to look at each one of these pillars. Let's first look at the pillar of the Hebrew scriptures. Notice that after he makes his claim that a new beginning has come, it is good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, the reason he's saying that right out of the gate is because this was written in the Old Testament. He writes in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord.'" make his path straight. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting partially from Malachi at the first beginning at the first part, Malachi 3:1, which says behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So he quotes from that. This is 400 years before Jesus. So this was part of God's plan all along. He had revealed a prophecy that Jesus would come 400 years before and then going back to Isaiah 300 years before that, 700 years before, God had promised his people that there would be a wil- someone in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert the highway of our God. Every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all connect these prophecies to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a critical character. He is, he is the one who goes before the king. He is the one who goes before the Messiah. He's the one that announces the way. That was an important prophecy in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, that one would come who would look like an Old Testament prophet, and he would prepare God's people before they came. This prepare the way is like kingly language. Even today when the president goes somewhere, there's always a group of people that go and make sure they secure the location first, right? Whenever we have a dignitary moving somewhere, there's 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 people that go ahead to prepare the way to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that all the press releases, all the things that need to happen. We still have that today. And in Old Testament times, if a king was going to come a few days, weeks, months, would go, "Hey, the king is coming to your town. We need to build a new road." We need to make, make sure we secure the, the path. We need to make sure that he has appropriate accommodations. So we still do that today, but they did that back in those days. And even God himself said that I will send someone. I will send someone who is going to come and prepare the way. And every, every gospel writer says that's John the Baptist. That's Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, which we'll look at in just a second. Look at the words in Malachi, not Malachi, Isaiah 40. And I don't know if, you, if we've covered this before. Um, let me see, is it up there? Oh, this, this font doesn't do a good job of it. But it says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the L-O-R-D. should be all capitals, which is God's personal name for Yahweh. So the prophecy is not just that a human Messiah would come, but that Yahweh himself would come. That one would come prepare the way and God himself would come. God himself would come. And so we, we see in this passage that the hope of Israel is not just that some great king like David would come, who would just be an earthly king and a sinful king, but that God himself would come to his people. God has always wanted to dwell with his people. And this prophecy is that God himself will come. And so when, Jesus, when Mark says that Jesus is the Son of God, he's pulling from Isaiah saying, Isaiah promised us that Yahweh himself would come, and there would be someone who would come before him and that would announce the way. That is John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. He is God come to his people and he has come to his throne. He has come not to a throne, but to a cross and come to his people. So prepare the way, prepare the way, prepare your hearts to receive this king, to receive actually Yahweh himself. Mark is pointing that ultimately this new beginning in Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel where God actually will come and dwell with his people again. And so there's just three quick applications from just this one pillar, these two verses, verses two and three. And it's this, God is sovereign over all of history. God is sovereign over all of history. He put these prophecies in place in the Old Testament, these promises, because he intended to pay them off. If Christianity was a man-made religion, there's no way you could foreshadow this. There's no way you could predict what would happen in 700, 400 years and yet we see that in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, that this Jesus is a new beginning, but it's part of what was promised from the old. It's not a new thing, it's a fulfillment of the old thing that is bringing in a new kingdom. So God is sovereign over all of history and has always been working every detail of existence according to his plan. And I think you can take comfort that in that in your own life as well. that God is still the God of history and he's using events in your life to accomplish his purposes, good and bad, just like he did with Israel. Secondly, we can learn from this pillar, God always keeps his promises to accomplish his purposes. God made promises and he kept every single one of them. It says in the New Testament, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. All of the Old Testament promises are yes in Jesus. And Mark is pointing us to a couple of those. That Yahweh would come to dwell among his people, that that person is Jesus. And thirdly, God is determined to dwell with his people no matter what it takes. It is going to cost Jesus a tremendous amount to come and dwell with his people, to dwell in the wilderness, to dwell with his people, to deal with their sins so that he might come and dwell with them again. That was always God's plan when he created the world. He created Adam and Eve to dwell with him, for him to walk with them in the garden. And because of sin, this relationship became broken, and God is determined to gather his people once again and to dwell with them, and so we can trust him. So we see that right out of the gate in just these first few verses. God is sovereign over history. He always keeps his promises, and he is determined to dwell with his people. And, uh, and that is great, great comfort. So we're only three verses into this book, and we already have massive expectations that are only going to get larger. Pillar number two, the preparation of the baptizing prophet. So we have this promise of one who will come and prepare the way. What will he be like? What will he do? Well, Mark actually spends a little bit of time talking about John. Not so much his origin like Luke chapter 1 talks about John's miraculous birth, just like Jesus's, and how John grew up as a relative of Jesus. But he just starts with verse 4, John appeared, like not just out of thin air, but for John, for Mark's purposes, he just gets to the point, right? He just, gets, he just gets to the narrative. But he explains quite a bit about John, which is interesting, the preparation of this baptizing prophet. John appeared, and what is he doing? He's baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming. He was marked by baptizing and preaching. And what was he preaching? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him. So he has a pretty effective ministry. It's not a seeker-sensitive ministry. It's not like he's got soft chairs and great music. You've got to go out in the desert. Like, it's inconvenient to go hear this guy. And he's going to make you get wet in dirty water. I don't know if you've been over to the Jordan, but it's, it's kind of dirty. <laughs> and you have to confess your sins. And, and so John doesn't have like a secret sensitive feel-good message. He has a very direct message that, hey, God is going to come, and he wants his people to be ready, and that's not a comfortable thing. You have to leave your comfort. You have to confess your sins. You have to submit yourself to this ritual in order to be prepared for the coming of... And, and people were responding. People were responding to this strong message to turn their hearts towards God. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's really interesting that Mark, who doesn't waste any time, doesn't waste any words, goes, hey, here's what he dressed like. We'll come back to that in a second. It's important. It's like a little Easter egg for those of us that, those of you that know your Old Testament, those of those readers would go, oh, wait a minute. He's pointing to a clue here, and he just lets it sit there. Verse 7, he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's quite an introduction that John is making. He's not careless with his announcement. He's like, the one that I'm going to point to is going to be able to change your life. He's going to be able to fix you spiritually. He's going to be able to make you right with God. And so John, this baptizing prophet who eats weird stuff in the desert, dresses in very crazy clothing... And every single one of the gospel writers point to John the Baptist as being a forerunner of Jesus, the one who is preparing the way. And I just want to look a little bit at his ministry in verses 4 and 5. His ministry is marked by baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a repentance of the forgiveness of your sins. So the baptizing in the wilderness is connected to the Old Testament where the priests would have to wash themselves before they would go to the temple. So before you can go and be in the presence of God... You needed to have your sins dealt with. And there was this ritual where the people who were going and offering sacrifices to commune and pray before God, they needed to go through washings. And so John is in a sense going, hey, Israel was always meant to be like a, a kingdom of priests, a people that pointed to God, and they are defiled, they are sinful, and they need washing. And in fact, only those that were baptized fully, like you would just wash your hands, you would just wash your clothing, um, knew Whenever Gentiles wanted to come and join Israel, often they would be baptized at this time. And so this was a sign of an outsider becoming an insider. And so what, what John is telling his, the Israelites is that you, because of your sin and your unfaithfulness to God, are outsiders. But God is about to come near, and if you want to commune with him, you must become an insider. And, and to, prepare the way, to prepare the way that the prophecy was talking about is talking about human hearts. It's not about needing a a bigger, wider road to physical Jerusalem. It's It's that our hearts, where the king is meant to be enthroned, his people, who are supposed to represent him in the world, they need their hearts changed. So we need one who will come and prepare the way, not in terms of creating a security detail, but in terms of turning God's people's hearts back to himself. Before drawing near to God, before God draws near to you and the Messiah, you need to prepare your hearts to receive him. And so, this baptizing was a symbol of being washed in order that when Yahweh comes, we might commune with him, we might know him, we might be ready for him, our hearts might be prepared for the king to take up his throne in our own hearts and among our people. And then he's proclaiming this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You need, and, and notice that it highlights that he's repenting in the, that he's baptizing in the wilderness. You have to leave the comfort and security of your life, and you need to go somewhere where you're totally dependent on God, right? You need to go out into the wilderness. God always met his people in the wilderness. You need to leave your normal life and enter a place of total dependence on God. You need to have your whole self washed, clean, clean, You need to have someone other than you baptize you. You can't clean yourself up. You need someone else to minister to you, to point out what you can't see. You need the ministry of others. You need community. And this prepare the way is not a physical road, but a spiritual road to the heart. God's people need to be cleared, strengthened, washed in preparation for God to come. And John's like, I'll point him out when he shows up. And John's ministry is wildly effective. People from all different places are responding to this responding to this and so the way is prepared for the messiah secondly we see his appearance in verse six which seems to hearken back to first second kings i'm sorry second kings one seven and eight where the king uh the king sends some messengers out and the messengers go and they meet with elijah and then the messengers come back quickly and the king is kind of surprised how quickly his messengers come back and he goes hey tell me about the guy you met this message that you receive, that you say from God, what's the guy like? And they're like, well, he has, a, he, has a, he has a garment of hair, and he wears a belt. And the king's like, that's Elijah. So I need to take this message. And So it was interesting that there's this connection. There was this belief, there was this promise in the Old Testament that a prophet like Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Mark is going, John the Baptist was dressed like Elijah. Elijah was marked by his clothing. He worked in the wilderness. He proclaimed God's truth. John the Baptist bears a resemblance to Elijah. Elijah has come. And so it's just this, this little Easter egg that he puts in there. For those that would know their Old Testament history, would know what Elijah dressed like, would go, John the Baptist fits that fits that connection. And then his purpose. His purpose is to get people ready to meet someone greater. Mark, John the Baptist is not there to, to, to bring a following on himself not to be the Messiah himself, but to get people prepared to meet Jesus. He talks about that humbly in his ministry, that I'm baptizing you with water, which is just a symbol. I can't actually change your heart. I can't change your status with God. I can only preach a message to you, and then to whatever extent that you respond, I can then administer this ritual to you. But someone will come who actually can change you, who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can get you wet. He can get you right with God. And we have this great promise that John makes. And he says that I can, I'm not even worthy to touch the straps of his sandal. Remember in the Old Testament, you couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant lest you die. It's like, this man is so holy. This man is so great that even I, the great prophet John the Baptist, cannot touch his sandals. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and do the slave's job. He is so much greater than me. Jesus says in Matthew 11:11 that... Among those born of women, there arise no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest human, according to Jesus, because he got to introduce the world to the Savior. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. John the Baptist, the greatest of those born among women is not worthy to even touch Jesus' sandals. and yet, those who have been made right with Jesus have a ministry like John's. John says his ministry is external, it's temporary, it's symbolic. But Jesus is eternal, permanent, internal, and it's the real thing. It's the Holy Spirit. Back in Numbers 11, 29, Moses cried out and said, Oh, with the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That was a promise in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come on people like Samson or David to do special works, but then it would leave. There was always this promise, this hope that one day God would actually put his spirit within his people. And that there would be one who would come who could actually bring God's spirit to his people. That's what Moses is crying out for in Numbers 11. In Isaiah 44.3, God himself said, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, another prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, a baptism. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. And in Joel two twenty eight again, another Old Testament prophet, hundreds of years promising that those who would respond rightly to the Messiah would receive this benefit of the Holy Spirit. And it shall come afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall be, see visions. So John understands that I can only do so much for you, I'm just a man. But the one I'm about to point you to is the God man and he will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will give you all the promises of the Old Testament. He will give you a relationship with God. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. No man can do that. No no preacher, no pastor, no internet celebrity, no YouTuber, no prosperity preacher, no one can baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus. No one can bring you into a relationship with God, but Jesus. And John knows that. He takes people to Jesus, and they also get the Father and the Spirit when they come to Jesus. So, I love this. Three things that we can learn from the second pillar about this second, this prophet, this, the preparation of this baptizing prophet who has just this incredible ministry of, being, of introducing Jesus to people. First, I'm just amazed at the interconnectedness of Scripture. It's just stunning, right? That Mark can go, hey, he's wearing a belt and camel hair. And you can go, oh, wait, that's Elijah, right? Like, I mean, there's so many intricate where the Scriptures are hyperlinking to itself across centuries. It's connecting and telling one story through different people in different places. God is communicating through us across time. Like, who could make this up? Who could make up this religion? Who could make Scripture do that? But the interconnectedness shows that there is a God above and beyond history that is communicating with us and pointing us to Jesus. Secondly, God calls His people from their comfort into the wilderness. We'll come back to this in a second, but just think of how many times throughout the Bible God calls His people in the wilderness. It's not in comfort. It's in terror. It's in desperation that God shows up. Again and again, God calls his people from their comfort into the wilderness. And so, for the people to prepare, they had to leave their homes and go out in the wilderness, be baptized by John in order to be prepared for the one who's coming. And that was God's plan, to bring us out of our comfort, to bring us out of our self-reliance, to make us deal with our sin, to have someone tell us what we don't want to hear, and then minister God's grace to us and help us repent. And I think a third application is that every Christian now has the humble ministry of John the Baptist. Of calling people, not to ourselves, but to the one whom we've met. Hey, if you'll repent of your sins and you'll come to Jesus, you will get the Holy Spirit. I'm not great as a preacher, as a pastor. I'm not great. I'm not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandals. But I do get the privilege, and we all get the privilege by God's Spirit, to proclaim this message and invite people to Jesus. We all get the ministry of John the Baptist now. Of being able to call people out of their comfort, out of their self-reliance, come, confess your sins, and believe in Jesus And you can be made whole. You can receive the Holy Spirit. Pillar number three, the pronouncement of the triune God. We get into verse 9 now. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee. So even Jesus left his home and came into the wilderness to join his people and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when they came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is an amazing passage. If I, could, if I had time travel tokens, I would use one to go to the Emmaus Road and hear Jesus preach, the resurrected Jesus preach on the Old Testament. I, if I had a second one, I might go to this one. This would be amazing, right? John the Bapti- Baptist baptizing Jesus, and then the sky opens up, a dove lands on Jesus, and a voice from heaven speaks. And so now we get Jesus actually on center screen here. This was all introduction to bring us to Jesus, and then we see what happens about this announcement with Jesus. We see this pronouncement of the triune God. I think it's fascinating that jesus it's necessary for Jesus to be baptized. In fact, in Matthew 3.15, he says, It is necessary, John, that I be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. There was something really important about Jesus coming and identifying with repenting sinners. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. Does Jesus have any any sin to repent of? He doesn't, which is why John is confused in Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't bother to record that. John's confused because he's like, I should be baptized by you. I'm the one with sin. You're not the one with sin. My baptism doesn't apply to you. And Jesus says, it's necessary that I Do this to fulfill all righteousness because Jesus, in a sense, is meeting his people in the water. He's identifying with them even in their sin. He's joining them in the water. He's joining them. There, he is identifying because Jesus himself is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means the sins of his people are going to be laid on him. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. In Jesus' baptism, we see the intention of Jesus' ministry is that he's going to be a sin-bearer for his people. He's going to identify with those who repent and turn to him. We see this heaven being torn open, which is a symbol in the Old Testament of eschatological, that means the end times, a symbol of God dealing with the human problem. Isaiah 64, 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake in your presence. So when the skies open up, it's because God is going to deal with the human problem, what's wrong with the world. But what's amazing is that when the heavens tore open, it's not justice that comes raining down, but grace. The human problem is going to be dealt with in His Son. God should run the heavens open and pour hot lava on the whole earth, just blow the whole thing up. But when the heavens are torn open, what flows down is grace, down through this one who identifies with repenting sinners. And what we're going to find in Mark chapter 15 is that the curtain of the temple is also going to be torn, and the way between God and man is going to be opened up Because sin has been dealt with. The human problem has been dealt with. The way to God is now open. So not a message of obliteration and anger, but of love and blessing. Because look what he says. He says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is, here God is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's putting two passages together. Psalm 2, 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him to bring forth justice to the nations. And so we have God the Father communicating a love for God the Son in that he is identifying with his people in their sin. He is going to deal with their sin. He's going to wash it away. He's going to give his people the Holy Spirit and that pleases the Father. It pleases the Father to see the Son. And we get this glimpse of the Trinity. The Trinity is the most important, maybe one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. The Trinity is the belief The doctrine that God is both three and one. God is not three different gods, tritheism, that just kind of cooperate and hang out together. It's one God, but He's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that relate to one another. God is not more three than He is one, and He's not more one than He is three, but He is always in this relationship. One what God in three who's. God is a singularity and a community at the same time. He's both an individual and he's part of a family at the same time. And we as people made in his image are not just merely individuals, but we're also connected to each other and meant to be connected to God. So we are made both for individuality and community. We need both as we're made in his image. C.S. Lewis talks about this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity as a dance of love. That every one of the members of the Trinity has always been seeking to honor and love the other member of the Trinity. For eternity, God has always been a God of love because God has always had someone to love. The three members of the Trinity have always been loving one another, glorifying one another, serving one another. And here we get heaven opened up and we get to see the Father declare His beloved Son, His love for the Son. So then when God sends His Son into the world, He's inviting us into the love of the Trinity, right? That if we'll receive Jesus Christ, we will be brought into this selfless love that the triune God ex- has existed for centuries, for, 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 for eternity. And so here we have just this amazing passage where God the Father declares His approval of God the Son and the Holy Spirit lands on Him. We have Jesus validating the ministry of John by being baptized. We see him identifying with repenting sinners. We see, him, we see him revealing to us the triune God and that this is a God who is going to extend grace to his sinful people. So three, three applications very quickly. The doctrine of the Trinity, Trinity is fundamental to understanding ourselves and all of reality. That God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit That God has always been a self-giving God. Each member of the Trinity has always been giving love and glory and serving each of the other members of the Trinity. And so when God creates a world, He He, He means for that world to love and serve Him, but also for Him to love and serve that world, right? And that when we are brought into His, when we are brought into a right relationship with Him, we relate to Him not just as an individual, but as a people. God saves not just individuals, but people. Just as he is both a singularity and a community, we also are meant to be not just singularly related to God, but related to him as a church, as a community, of self-giving love, of self-giving love. Secondly, our health as image bearers must have both an individual and a community aspect. We can't just walk with Jesus by ourselves. Those of you that have tried to walk with Jesus for a while know that we can get really off the path if we try to do it only by ourselves. But we're meant to be part of a community. And third, baptism is a big deal because it is where Jesus met with sinners. It is what kicked off his ministry. Jesus Jesus was baptized as an identification with us. And that is where, at that place where we heard the audible voice of God giving approval for his son. And what Jesus says when he gives his great commission in Matthew 28, 18, he says, Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." he says, part of their discipleship is that you would baptize them in what? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is the one place we've seen the Trinity? At Jesus' baptism. So when we're baptized, we're in a sense joining Jesus in the water, and we're getting to hear that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The church, when it baptizes someone and they come up out of the water, they're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are, in a sense, getting to be that heaven ripping open. heaven ripping open, and saying, this son and daughter, I am well pleased with them, because they identify with Jesus, right? So Jesus' baptism then becomes shared with us. It says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what a, what a privilege it is to identify with Jesus as he identifies with us in the water, and to hear God say through the one who's baptizing, you are my beloved son or daughter, with you I'm well pleased. We all need to hear that. Jesus needed to hear that before he was about to go and do his hard work of ministry. He needed to hear the approval of his father. And all of us, when we come to faith in Jesus, need to hear the approval of our father. And baptism is one of the formal ways that we do that. By saying, this is a beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. To give public testimony to the world that the most fundamental thing in all the world is that this triune God loves this sinner. And calls that sinner to bear his name, to receive his love, and to live pleasingly to him and as a community. As an individual and as a community. Which brings us to pillar four. We're on the home stretch. Fourth quarter. Here we go. Two-minute warning. We're almost done. Well, be more than two minutes. But. Pillar four. The victory over Satan's temptation. So you've seen each of these pillars, right? The Old Testament scriptures, this baptizing prophet, even the triune God himself, all announcing... Look at Jesus. Pay attention to him. He will change your life, right? And then we get pillar number four, and we actually almost get Satan here. We do get Satan here. Almost as if Satan himself unwittingly gives testimony to the greatness of Jesus, right? Because immediately after Jesus' baptism, he goes off into the wilderness to defeat humanity's greatest enemy, right? Victory over Satan's temptations. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That's kind of an interesting thing to say, right? It's not like Jesus wandered off, but the Spirit drove him. The Greek word is ekbalo. It means cast out. It's like throwing a brick through a window. Jesus is cast out into the wilderness. So this was part of the plan of God. This was part of his ministry, that he would be tested and that he would be victorious. Which maybe, if we're followers of Jesus and the Holy Spirit drives us into something very hard... Maybe it's not because he's punishing us. Maybe it's because he's refining us and he intends to give victory to us, right? So he drove him out in the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This feels a little bit like the replaying of Genesis. The whole book starts with an in the beginning, right? And then what we have is we have God the Father... We have the Spirit hovering over the waters, like in Genesis chapter 3. We have something emerging from those waters, and God's saying, This is very good. This is my beloved Son. It's like a new world is being created. It's like Genesis is being replayed, and now there's a new Adam coming out, and whom God is very pleased with, and that Adam is now going to be tempted by Satan, just like in Genesis 3, except now there's a new representative of humanity. There's a new Son of God that's coming out, and he is going to take on the temptations of Satan. And unlike Adam who will fall and plunge all of the human race into sin, this Adam will win. And those who identify and are born again with him will now have his victory, right? So he's in a wilderness. Adam, The first Adam was in a garden. He had home field advantage. This Adam, this new Adam, this Jesus is in a wilderness. He's on the enemy's territory. Adam falls what seems like in a day. Jesus is out there for 40 days, This is paralleling Israel's wandering and unfaithfulness. He's like a new Israel. He's like a new Adam. And what we see is we we see that a new kingdom is breaking into the world. A new world is breaking in, a new creation. And where the first Adam fell, the second Adam, Jesus, will be victorious. He was in the wilderness. Adam had home field advantage. He had the presence of God. He had the tree of life. He had animals that were cooperative. Jesus is in a wilderness where the animals are trying to tear him apart where there is no food or water, and he defeats, he passes the test, he defeats the enemy. And so what we see is that there's now two worlds. There's the world of sin, death, and hell, identified with Adam, that we're born into, but now there's now this other world. For those that will identify with Jesus, there will be victory over the enemy. Many scholars believe that this statement that he was with the wild animals, only Mark includes that, Many scholars believe that Mark is writing this gospel in Rome during the persecution of Christians. And if we look at the time when Peter died, when he's likely writing this, one of the things that they would do is release wild animals to tear apart man, woman, and child. If you identified as a Christian, that was now a sport to release wild animals and watch for entertainment as Christian, Christians are torn apart by wild animals. And some scholars speculate that Mark includes the detail that Jesus is with the animals to encourage us that maybe following Jesus means that we're going to be cast into some hard wilderness places. We're going to be cast into a place where we're going to be torn up and torn apart and persecuted. And he wants us to know that Jesus is with us. Mark includes this detail to show that Jesus is with his people in the wilderness. You remember in the Old Testament when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace? And then they look in and they go, I see four in there and one looks like the Son of Man. Well... I think this passage is telling us. Perhaps. It's just, a, it's just a clue. But hey, if you're being attacked by wild beasts, Jesus knows that and he's with you. He's with you in temptation. He is with you in trial. He is with you among the predators. He has not abandoned you. He has a purpose for you. So do not be afraid. Jesus knows in his present, don't fail, don't quit. Take heart, take comfort. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to be attacked. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And through him, we may have victory over those things. He is with us. And so we have three applications from this fourth pillar, which is Jesus went to the wilderness as your representative to defeat your enemy. And he did. You could not defeat Satan on your own. But God gave approval to his son and then cast him off into the wilderness so that he might achieve the victory that you could not achieve yourself. And he didn't do it from an ivory tower. He came down into the muck and mire. He came to the desolate one of the most desolate places on the earth. And he won. He won with, without home field advantage. He won hungry. He won tempted. He won attacked. And he still won. And so your enemy, Satan, has been defeated. He has been defeated in and through Jesus. And that victory is only enjoyed in and through Jesus. Secondly, Jesus knows what you're facing and is with you. He's with the wild beasts, right? I think there might be something to that, that Mark is meaning to encourage his readers to know. That Jesus knows and he is with you. He can sympathize with you, as Hebrews says. And third, the new creation has come in and through Jesus. It does feel like Genesis 3, Genesis is being reversed. Like all that went wrong in Genesis, this beautiful creation that was marred and broken by sin, that has been struggling forever, hoping that the seed of the woman would come crush the head of the serpent, he's here. He's here now, and he's replaying history. History is now being reversed. The curse is being overcome. It's being reversed. And what we're going to see in the next few weeks is that Jesus is going to defeat death. He's going to defeat demons. He's going to defeat disease. He's going to defeat all of the things that come with the curse. He's going to reverse the curse, and it started with the defeat of Satan in the wilderness. And so now he goes off on his victory march of of setting his people free. We'll see that throughout the rest of the book until ultimately he sends us all free through his death and resurrection. So, if you will go to Jesus in the wilderness, leave the provisions of this world. Don't trust in them. Leave the security of running your own life. Dethrone yourself and go to the wilderness. Go to him in the place Where only God can keep you alive. Go to that place of greatest pain for you. And you'll find God there. How many times has God met his people in places of desperation? Moses on the backside of the wilderness in a burning bush. David, while fleeing from Saul, meets him regularly. Most of the Psalms are part of that. Elijah, who just wants to die. (laughs) God speaks to him in a still, small voice. We could go on and on. God meets with his people in the wilderness. He sustained his people. With manna in the wilderness, led them by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. God loves to take us into the wilderness where we have no other options but him. And then we find him to be sufficient. We find him to be living water and true bread. We see that over and over again. It's not in the places of comfort where God most meets us. It's in the places of pain. So go ahead and lean in to the places of wilderness where you're out of options and out of answers. And see if that isn't a place where Jesus is meeting you. He meets the woman at the well, out in the wilderness. Changes her life. Maybe you're in that place today. If so, you are well positioned to meet Jesus, the Son of God. It may be that this new beginning, this gospel that Mark is is promising us is about to take hold of you. So if you're in a place of pain and desperation, you might be in a place where Jesus is meaning to meet you. And you'll never be the same again. If we like John says, if we will repent of our sins and receive the one who can baptize us with the Holy Spirit, who identifies with us in his death and resurrection, we too may have new life. We, we too might experience victory. And it might not be comfortable, it's going to be found in the wilderness, but it is good news. God comes to us in the wilderness. So John Mark has now introduced us to someone who will change our lives forever, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the fulfiller of the Old Testament promise, proclaimed by humble Christians like John the Baptist. Offering you access to God and defeating all your enemies. And so we have this call to come and see, to prepare the way, to repent and believe, and let the one who alone can baptize with the Holy Spirit save us. So let's bow our heads right now. And let's just ask the Lord Jesus to come and to set us free from our sins. Set us free from the snare of the devil. To give us his Holy Spirit. Maybe some of us are already Christians, and we just need to be reminded of all that we've just received in Jesus. Maybe some of us are not yet Christians or skeptical, and this is a great opportunity right now to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the Son of God who has done all of this for you. Let's take just a moment of silence, just pray, and ask the Lord to, to, to do his work in our hearts through this message. Oh God, we thank you for this incredible introduction. Uh, We're only getting started. We're just halfway through chapter 1 of 16 as we marvel at who Jesus is and what he's done. And we've already seen so many things, so many connections to the Old Testament, so many things that you put in place centuries before that people had forgotten about, that you then brought, promises that you made, the prophecies that you fulfilled. You have not forgotten your people. And God, I pray that you would meet people still in the wilderness of their lives and God I pray that we would repent of our sins put our trust in you and we would receive Jesus and we thank you for this big claim this big book this big promise help us to receive this big gospel by faith and help us to proclaim it like John with great humility but great boldness we ask for this in Jesus name amen